so great to see you all this morning. Thank you for coming and sharing uh, this Sunday with us, uh, particularly in light of the fact that, at least according to Rick's count, it's been 30 years since New Hope Chapel got started. So uh, I wasn't here then. came about um, 12 years ago. But uh, even from 12 years ago, we've seen the Lord do a lot. We've seen a lot of change. Uh, it's not quite the same uh, little group anymore. <clears throat> God continues to use and has continued to use New Hope Chapel uh, as I've as I've been here my 12 years, and uh, we are just grateful for that. We are grateful for what he's done on our behalf. Well, thank you, Melanie, the rest of the worship team. Great, great set. I particularly like the line in that song, never once did we ever walk alone. We're not left alone in the Christian life to fumble through it. In fact, God says he's working in our hearts to create in us the mind of Christ. We're being transformed into Christ-likeness. But you know, my mind goes off in a lot of directions. And some of those directions aren't good. If I could think like Christ did all the time, if I could have His mindset, what a wonderful thing that would be. Well, this morning we're going to learn about one aspect of Christ, a Christ-like mindset that will have a profound impact on how we live. I'm going to talk about a principle that, as we keep applying it, will affect how we think and how we respond to virtually every situation. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to Luke 16. This is a parable known as the parable of the shrewd manager, or as some translations call it, the dishonest manager. Jesus told his disciples, Luke 16, starting in verse 1, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be a manager any longer. The manager said to himself, What shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm too ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do, so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me, into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, How much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil. He replied. The manager told him, Take your bill. Sit down quickly and make it 450. Then he asked the second, How much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat. He replied. He told him, Take your bill. Make it 800. The master commended this dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. You know, this parable is one of the most perplexing, perhaps, that Jesus told. You can find a whole range of attempts to understand it. That's why I like it. I like digging into these things and, and uh, trying to see what God has for us. Well, it does raise some questions and concerns. Perhaps some of these have occurred to you. Is God condoning unethical behavior? 
what is this about using money in order to be welcomed into eternal dwellings? And then maybe the best question of all, why did Jesus use a parable of questionable characters and unethical behavior at all? But we're going to dig in, try to interpret and understand this teaching. In the process, we're going to answer these problems sort of one by one as we work through the text. So to begin to understand this parable, where do we go? We go to the background first. Take a look at that. What comes before it? In Luke 15, the chapter before, the whole chapter is filled with three parables. Perhaps you know them. The parable of the lost sheep the parable of the lost coin, the parable of the lost son. Jesus talking to the Pharisees and teachers of the law about uh, the loving and seeking heart of God. And all this is in response to the Pharisees' complaints of Jesus that he was associating with sinners. What comes after it? Well, the Pharisees overhear Jesus telling his disciples the parable of the shrewd manager, and they sneer at him. Jesus addresses them and eventually tells them the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Starting in verse 19 and following. Interesting. The audience. Jesus spoke to the disciples. So it's not a parable about obtaining salvation. Its emphasis is rather on how to live as a kingdom citizen in light of the gospel. Well, what is a parable? The best description of it I found is it's a compelling story that draws a listener in and illustrates a point. Think of it as a simple comparison that's turned into a story. What do I mean? Well, a person can state the truth that God forgives and receives sinners. You could add a simple comparison to help people understand that, help understand what God is doing, and say, God forgives and receives sinners like a father forgives and receives a wayward child. So you can take that same truth, and you could also communicate it by means of a story. And you end up with a parable like the parable of the prodigal son. Very useful in punching truth through. It's a great way that we've been designed to learn. Pictures tell a lot. Worth a thousand words. Aesop's fables are classic parables. You know, none of Jesus' parables are allegories. Do you know the difference? This is a working description. But an allegory contains a set of truths or generalizations about human experience through a fictitious story. Think of Pilgrim's Progress where all the characters represent something and there's interactions and you learn a great deal about the Christian walk or George Orwell's Animal Farm. An allegory has multiple points of comparison and meaning. A parable is designed to impress one idea on us. Like Aesop's The Tortoise and the Hare. You remember the story. The hare boasted he would be the fastest in the race. He was so confident he took a nap in the middle of the race and woke up too late. The tortoise won the race. And the moral of the story, does anybody remember? Slow and steady wins the race. I found an old version of this, and it said plotting wins the race. Same idea. But there's Aesop, boiling it down to one crisp idea that he 
communicated through a story. Armed with this information, let's go back to the parable again. So we have a very rich man that hears that his accounts receivable manager has wasted or squandered the man's possessions. The word here for for wasted or squandered means to scatter. And it's used of winnowing grain. You throw the grain up in the air and let the wind uh, blow away the chaff. The heavier grain falls to the ground. It's also used in the previous chapter, Luke 15, in the story of the prodigal son, where it describes the prodigal son partying away all his money. Scattered his wealth, his money, his inheritance. The manager was definitely enjoying himself. His world was in order. The master tells the manager, not so fast. You're out of a job, and you need to get your account books in order. Well, the manager's world caved in on him. Suddenly, his comfortable occupation was going to end in a very short time, and a long future of unemployment loomed up and became a reality. He, was, he now saw his world ending and a new one coming. What was going to happen to him? Life in the street? His dilemma was that he was not strong enough to do manual labor, and he was too proud to beg. But he thinks of a plan. In light of this new reality, he puts his plan into motion. Let's look at the text again. The manager meets with all of the people that, he, that owes his master a debt. And we have two examples that follow. He says he meets with each one. If it was just two, he would have said he met with the two debtors that owed his manager a debt. But there was a series of them. They were either tenant farmers who rented the land from the master. And as a rental payment, they paid a portion of their crop back. uh, Or they were wholesale merchants who had given promissory notes for goods that had been received. We're not really told of the difference which they were. Well, first, there was a man that owed the master 900 gallons of oil, the oil from the grove of about 150 olive trees. Wow. That's what they were paying back. These are big players, big amounts we're talking about here. The manager basically tells him, here's your old promissory note. Write a new one quickly and make it for 450 gallons. The price, the debt was reduced Now the man paying back only had to pay back half of what was originally promised, netting the money from that other half. Saved a lot of money. The second man owed a 1,000 bushels of wheat. Well, that's wheat from probably around 100 acres of land. The manager has him write a new promissory note quickly for only 800 bushels of wheat. So what did the manager do? In real terms, he saved each debtor a lot of money, anywhere between $30,000 and $80,000 for each. Sort of can figure it out in terms of denarii, but the problem with denarii is it was in use for 400 years, and it went through, over those 400 years, massive inflation at the end. Not as much inflation as the U.S. dollar probably has seen in the last 100 or 120 years, but still enough so that it makes it really hard to know where first century Palestine fit in terms of that inflation curve 
because it's right in the middle of those 400 years. But anyway, perhaps something in the neighborhood of thirty dollars to $80,000 each. They were now indebted to the manager, and they would welcome him into their homes. That was the plan. And uh, we're not given the details because the parable's not trying to illustrate the details of the story. It's trying to punch home its one point. But we presume that it was a successful plan. He also changed his thinking. He no longer, no longer would things go on as before. He chose, made a choice to stop partying, stop wasting resources, and instead everything he did was to use what he had as a resource now in order to make friends that would become important in his future. His behavior changed completely. So much so that we read the master commended the dishonest manager because he acted shrewdly. Wow. Why would the master do that? We're not told. Again, it's part of the, part of the parable that we don't have the details for. But it's important to notice that shrewdly may not be the best word. Shrewdly carries some baggage. We don't like to think of ourselves as shrewd. We like to think of ourselves as nice and good. So we have that baggage sort of here. The word, so let's understand how the word's used. It carries the idea, if you look at the rest of the use in the New Testament, carries the idea of being prudent, sensible, and wise, as well as kind of the, sh- the shrewd part, the cleverness, and so on. Let me tell you a couple of places it's used. It's used of the wise man who built his house on a rock. It's used in the parable of the ten virgins. There were these young maidens that were involved in a wedding. They had to take these lamps with oil. Five of the virgins were foolish, and the five that brought enough oil were wise, this very word. Romans twelve sixteen says, Be of the same mind one toward another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. That's that word. So the commendation of the master was really for wise actions that the man, of the manager and not his dishonesty. What the manager did that was wise was he used his current resources, the authority over the, the master's business, to make friends that would become important to him in the future. It could be and we have to, we're reading in between the lines here, could be the master's commending him, thinking, look at that behavior change. If you had just acted like that when you were working for me, I never would have fired you. You really are a good guy at heart. Why did, why did, you, why did you spend my possessions and scatter them? We don't know. But Jesus reinforces the conclusion of the master's comments. It is the wisdom of the manager, not the unethical, unethical aspects of what he did. So we get to the first of our questions here. Is God condemning, uh, condoning ethical behavior? No. He's condoning the wise actions of a man who sees a new reality. Because it was a new reality that changed his approach. That, that in mind is what changed his actions. So what's the main point of the parable? 
What's the moral of the story if Esau had a, if Aesop had a chance to, to tell us? Well, my, my pitiful effort is a wise person makes different decisions in the light of new realities or realities. The manager stopped wasting his master's possessions and strategically used these resources to prepare for his future. All because a new reality was introduced to him. He saw something different than just his cozy little world. Then Jesus brings the parable home for the disciples. Our troubling phrases aren't over with yet. Again, in Luke 16, toward the very end, for the people of this world are more shrewd, same word, the people of this world are more wise in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. All right, well, let's start with how the main point was applied. You know, the disciples had just heard Jesus interact with the Pharisees. He heard, they heard him interact with the Pharisees a lot. But they heard this lesson and heard it loud and clear. The Pharisees are people who did not make different decisions based on the announcement of the kingdom and the gospel. Jesus had just told them three parables, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, to try to wake them up to the heart of God. There was something different than the world that they chose to only live in. But the Pharisees as a group were not buying the idea of a new reality. They believed in, an, in heaven, they believed in an afterlife, but they didn't, their thinking didn't include the idea that, hey, that's a new reality that, that has to affect how we live. Instead, they were content to love their power, love their money, and love their status as if nothing else existed. So Christ was trying to wake them up to the loving, seeking heart of God. But there's something unique in the way Jesus talks here. Do you see it at the bottom? He says, children of light, that the manager was more wise in dealing with his own kind than the children of light. And then there's that phrase, worldly wealth, which literally is wealth of unrighteousness. Those are the the, uh, Greek words. You know what these are? These are technical terms used by the Essenes. They were a group in Israel at the time. We all know about the Pharisees, Sadducees. We hear about the Zealots. The Essenes were that group of people. They withdrew from society, and they had uh, this community down by the, the Dead Sea. And so maybe you've already guessed. These are the folks that, in copying the Scriptures, we ended up with the Dead Sea Scrolls. This is the group. They were so concerned about pursuing purity of life, they chose to separate from all other Israelites, to withdraw completely. People who wanted to join the Essenes had to give up all their money, all their property, all their possessions. And once in the group, contact with those outside just didn't happen. 
wasn't allowed. And here it is. They love to call themselves the children of light. And they called everyone else, Pharisees, everybody included, children of darkness. Money was viewed as evil by them. Money's evil. You stay away from it, you don't touch it. You know what they called it? The wealth of unrighteousness. Jesus, in using these terms, was teaching the disciples that not only were the Pharisees on the wrong track, taking advantage of society, loving money so much that they had made themselves blind to the heart of God, but the Essenes also had the wrong mindset. They were not making wise choices to live in a way that used today to impact eternity. Jesus says, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Using the language of the parable, Jesus encourages his disciples to think strategically and wisely like the manager when he made friends so that when he was unemployed, he'd be welcomed into their homes. The disciples, too, should look at today through the lens of eternity and feel free to use all their resources, money, time, effort, in that light, certainly to include investing in people. Our second problem was, what is it about using money, in, or what's this thing about using money in order to be welcomed into eternal dwellings? Salvation is not an issue with the disciples. They believed and had left their former lives to follow Jesus full time. What he wanted them to do was keep the two realities in view at the same time their current lives, and eternity, so that they could act wisely with today's resources and not be like the Essenes, not be like the Pharisees that were wrapped up in it, focused on it, not be like the Essenes that turned their back on current resources out of a, a, uh, a thought that they would live only for eternity. What should this parable mean to us? Like the manager, we live temporarily in one world with another reality right there beside it. The parable teaches us the wise person makes different decisions in light of this new reality. Why would an eternal perspective be important? I know I see it best when I go along, and I'm not here at church, but I'm on Tuesday or Thursday, and I'm going along in life, and things happen. When things unexpectedly happen, <clears throat> I'm not good. I don't reset very quickly. And so I run into situations, I have conversations, and then I think later and say, ah, you know, I should have said this, I should have said that. What was I thinking? And uh, I had a small encounter this week, with one of our residents in my community who stopped just as I was flinging, well, should I say it, dog poo, into the woods. And he, he stopped and said, look, I'm on the board, and, you know, we, we really don't want people doing that because, uh, you know, people go in there. And I was sort of looking at this place that nobody could get into. And he said, well, we have, you know, we have county people that come by here, and so on. And uh, I said, oh, 
And he said, so I'd appreciate it if you didn't do that. And I said, oh, okay. And so he drove off, and I thought, you idiot. I, I used to carry home that stuff, but you know the smell and everything. And these woods are horrific. Nobody's going in these things. And the stuff degrades very quickly. But I'm a good neighbor. I'd be delighted to carry mine home. I wish I had said that to him. But I didn't shift fast enough. My mind didn't change. I didn't click into neighbor mode. I'm out there busy trying to get this walk done. And so, even if you don't have that specific problem, walking through life with an eternal mindset doesn't mean we can't have vacations. It doesn't mean we have to, you know, uh, all move into one little shack so we can save mortgage money and so on. But God wants us to be sensitive to His Spirit to not have to reset because we miss the opportunities then, but to be open to His Spirit Think in terms of eternity because it will make a difference in what we do. Just that difference in thought. When opportunities arise, particularly for me in the form of hardships, I'm already leaning on him and expecting him to do his work. We will find that we apparently have missed. Either God's all of a sudden stepped up his work in working in our lives or we missed all those times before. But if we focus on, on eternity and what that means, uh, it changes our thinking. Our perspective becomes different. You know, Paul in 1 Corinthians, he's in the middle of detailed instructions to married couples. And there's a, there's a lot, even in the first few of these verses, that, you know, you'd have to, have to figure out. But get his overall point. He says, what I mean, brothers, is that time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they had none. Those who mourn, as if they did not. Those who are happy, as if they were not. Those who buy something, as if it was not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world, as if not engrossed in them, for this world in its present form is passing away. That's a mindset change that Paul's talking about, that we're talking about. The last question that I said we deal with, why did Jesus use a parable with questionable characters and dishonest behavior? Well, Jesus used this parable with its dishonest manager to shock the reader. You're hearing this story about this guy and he's doing things that eh, really seem awfully questionable, but he's using that on purpose because it's an attention grabber. It makes us... Uh, It takes us out of our usual ways of thinking, and then he can punch through a new idea in it. You know, um, as I think about uh, having a different mind, having a different way of thinking, and sort of including in my thinking about what I'm doing here, driving straight and all those things, as well as keeping in mind that I, I live in a world, in an eternal spiritual universe. I always remember those elementary school and high school plays and concerts that my children were in. Perhaps you remember being in some of those programs yourself or sitting in the audience. I remember sitting there in my metal folding chair, enjoying the presentation, looking at all the great scenery, kind of getting engrossed in this scene that's taking place in a newspaper office. 
But then also, at the same time, noticing the painted lines of the gym floor under my feet. And then looking up and seeing a couple of basketball backboards and hoops that had been cranked up out of the line of sight. What's happening on stage was real in a sense, but it was temporary. The room had been a gymnasium before, it was still a gymnasium, and it was going to be returned to its gymnasium state within a day or two. The metal chairs would be folded up, the scenery would be pushed out of the way and dismantled, the props stuffed into storage cabinets. There'd be nothing left but the reality of the gym. Just like the play in the school gym, we're involved in events here on this planet, but one way, all of this is going to get swept away, and we're going to be left only with the reality of eternity and God's spiritual universe that was there all along. We need to live this life, be involved in the things that we need to be involved in, but also keep in mind we're sitting in this gymnasium. We're sitting in a spiritual, eternal universe. And that is the mind of Christ. That's what he did. He saw things on this earth, his ministry. What was in his mind? Eternity. And what could be done there? Let's pray. Our dear Lord, we thank you that you are patient, that you work in us and in our hearts, that you're transforming us. Lord, we want to have your mind. We want to think like you think. We want to be tools that you can use. And having a thinking that lines up with the mind of Christ is the best way that we can be tools for you. Pray that this week as we go, that you will continue to work in us in your very patient way. And uh, we look forward to seeing what you do in our lives, what you bring in our lives that you can use to mold us and shape us. Thank you for this time. In your name, amen.